0: Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, We're here at King's College London in the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine today. And we're going to discuss challenges and opportunities in regenerative medicine. My name is Fiona Watt. I'm director of the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. And I'm also director of the UK regenerative medicine platform uh, on immunomodulation of stem cells. I'm going to be the chairman for today's panel discussion and I'm going to introduce now the uh, other members of the panel. First up, we have Francesco Dazi, who's Professor of Regenerative and Hematological Medicine and the lead for cellular therapies at King's Health Partners. Then we have John Mayer, who's a Clinical Senior Lecturer and Honorary um, Consultant in Immunology. And finally, Graham Lord, who is Professor of Medicine and Director of the NIHR Biomedical Research Centre at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital. So, um, as we know, the goal of regenerative medicine is to replace damaged or diseased tissue and um, find uh, ways of treating uh, diseases that are currently um, have a very poor prognosis. At present, um, two different uh, types of approaches appear to be feasible. One is to stimulate the body's own cells to uh, repair the tissue, and the other is to transplant uh, cells into the body. And both of these approaches are classed as cell therapies. We're here to discuss the challenges and opportunities of cell therapies. And we're going to cover topics such as how cell therapy research is regulated, the role of the commercial sector, and how uh, this research impacts on clinical trials. So let's begin by um, looking, first of all, at compliance. Francesca, what is the regulatory landscape in the UK? And is it supportive of cell therapies?
1: So this is a key question because uh, we all uh, were involved in uh, cellular therapies uh, that require a lot of guidance. Um, The regulatory hurdles are massive and the main bottleneck for us to finally develop what we want into the clinic. So uh, in the UK we got uh, I think a fantastic uh, uh, regulatory agency which is called Medicinal Healthcare Products or MHRA. Uh, uh, a, a um, which uh, is uh, meant to not only regulate but also advise in this um, they if i may summarize briefly what they do i think that uh, they are extremely important also for personal experience in facilitating the identification and the navigation of the most appropriate path to go through um, and to give you some examples of what it does what they do doing and they have done. For example, they have uh, an innovation office through which uh, uh, companies or academics who want to develop a product, they can contact them and be routed towards their specific need, whether it is uh, a preclinical or clinical investigation or a process validation. They have also uh, implemented a system for a fast track to access in this uh, potential medicinal product uh, by which uh, a company or an academic can make a particular medicine available even before it is licensed or has terminated the proper clinical trial. This of course, has huge implication for patients because they can receive these treatments even before everything is uh, uh, set in stone uh, for the market. They have implemented a fantastic collaboration with the MRC and the uh, catapult to develop different guidelines uh, that is uh, for example has been translated in a cell therapy passport, uh, so every cell has uh, a sort of credential a, a proper uh, um, evaluation sheet is not mandatory yet but it is a good presentation, a good facilitator for uh, any uh, agent, any company, any academic who wants to uh, develop this. Um, they are also advising on uh, a supply uh, um, issue. This is particularly important again in the developmental phase. Just to give you the example, we have been working uh, and developed a uh, uh, national uh, mesenchymal stem cell program uh, and we are supplying at the moment cells based on uh, uh, a hospital exemption rule and uh, the, um, the other uh, uh, it is the uh, according to the specials. So there is this possibility that according to their guidelines uh, and their advice all through the process uh, we have been able to provide uh, I think vital resources for patients.
0: Thank you. That's very interesting. So, by and large, you would um, say that the UK landscape is, um, in terms of regulation, is supportive of the field. So, um, John, what do you see um, as the biggest regulatory or policy challenges in regenerative medicine, um, both in the UK and internationally?
2: So, I mean, I guess I would start by echoing what Francesco has just said. I completely agree that um, in, in the UK we are very privileged to have a, a very supportive regulatory authority for, um, for, for first in man testing of innovative cell therapy uh, approaches such as chimeric antigen receptor engineered T cells and other uh, related cell therapies. Um, so I think early stage uh, is, um, uh, as I say, we're very well supported. I would say the key regulatory hurdle to the development of cell therapies uh, is at the later stage of, of development really. And thinking really more globally, we have, uh, we have a number of issues that I think we need to deal with. So there are problems with uh, inconsistencies between uh, the, the approach that's taken in Europe to develop a cell therapy compared to the US. So for example, the clinical trial application process that we go through here is quite different actually to the IND um, uh, application that would be made in a US center. And and even beyond that, even within Europe, within the so-called common market as we used to refer to it, there is in fact quite a bit of heterogeneity in terms of the way issues such as good manufacturing practice uh, are implemented across Europe. And the kind of data that one needs in order to uh, secure the approval of regulatory authorities varies quite a bit. Um, And and these kind of heterogeneities I think are very important because ultimately in order for cell therapies to become a key um, element of medical practice, as I'm sure they will, we need to embrace the commercial hurdles that that brings with it as you develop these new cell therapies through the developmental pipeline. And we need standardization really.
0: So can I just um, ask you, To some extent, the heterogeneity between countries smacks of a little bit of sort of old-fashioned protectionism. Um, But if um, one of the trials which is going on um, with IPS cells in Japan or the US, if it were to be spectacularly successful, do you feel that the UK UK patients would be able to benefit quickly? Or do you think that everything would have to start again from scratch in the uk before a proven therapy would um, be
2: available yeah. i mean i suspect in the face of highly compelling clinical data that it would be the former that would be the case but it, it nonetheless remains uh, you know for me that is the key hurdle that needs to be addressed we need to have a level playing field uh, we need to understand what kind of data package we need to present to regulatory authorities in Japan versus Switzerland versus the UK versus the US in order to to secure approval to to market that cell therapy.
0: Thank you. Uh, So now let's uh, look at the challenges and opportunities which are associated with uh, the industry and the market. So Graham, what do you consider to be the role of the commercial sector?
3: So the role of the commercial sector is... um, releasing investment, I think. It's sort of the the median to late phase uh, of clinical trials. And I think the important thing that we're learning in the UK right now is that these processes need to be run in parallel. So I think at the moment, as we've discussed, there's lots of very exciting early phase work and first in man. And I think the regulators understand that. I think in order that we haven't just shifted the roadblock 50 yards down the road, I think understanding how you move from a a first in man, you know, sort of 20 to 50 patient study to turn 250 patient study is going to be absolutely key. That requires investment probably over and above what the public sector could afford out with a few, you know, sort of flagship trials. And I suspect again, the the balance of um, risk to investment will be, you know, how spectacularly successful these things are. So I think if there was a very successful RPS trial in Japan, I'm sure people would be falling over themselves to fund it in the UK. But that's, likely to be the exception rather than the rule. So I think the commercial sector that actually are looking very excitedly at the cell therapy field at the moment but have made sort of very modest investment compared to, you know, sort of checkpoint regulators in cancer um, are looking to have proven efficacy, proven scalability um, and clearly the model of IP process protection is still developing as well because that would be critical to successfully unlock sort of scalable commercial investment for the, if you like, the pivotal phase 2b3 trial.
0: So so, um, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM, um, um, has um, one approach to supporting the commercial sector is to provide um, loans for companies to partner with academics. Um, I would open the question to all of you actually and say what do you feel about the Cell Therapy Catapult which is uh, funded by Innovate UK and is designed to uh, foster commercialisation of these types of treatments?
3: Well I think the, the catapult's is a fantastic idea. Um, It's a fantastic experiment, so I guess time will tell whether it's a successful model, but I think it's quite an innovative model that the UK um, is launching, both within regenerative medicine and in other fields of innovation. So it is very exciting, and I think what you do see is industry coming to the table and Catapult can help to broker those arrangements and at the same time I think what Catapult is doing is listen to industry to say what is it we need to make this an investable proposition so I think the large scale manufacturing facilities which they're going to be building in Stevenage um, over the next 18 to 24 months is going to be absolutely critical to de-risk it for that commercial investment. So I think the Catapult model is very exciting.
0: So John. Uh, Graham mentioned um, uh, immunotherapy for cancer, um, and that is an area that's very close to your heart. So could you say a bit about your own experience of uh, going from proof of concept into a a clinical trial and possibly a bit about the interactions between uh, industry and academia there?
2: Okay, so, um, so we have developed a, a number of chimeric antigen receptors over the years, one of which we have just taken into a clinical trial which began uh, in the early part of uh, this summer and it was kind of an interesting experience for me because the development of this program was initiated before CAR T-cell immunotherapy um, had attracted the kind of uh, interest that is now certainly um, uh, very prevalent and focused around uh, B-cell targeted or CD19 targeted CAR T-cells. So it's kind of been interesting to watch the evolution uh, of the field uh, and our own experiences as we try to take some of these molecules into the clinic. What I would say is that um, uh, our experience really uh, suggests that the way forward is to engage with the regulators as early in the process as possible. So we made contact with the MHRA in order to seek advice from them in terms of the kind of data package that they would like to see in terms of efficacy of the approach in terms of potential safety in relevant preclinical models and also in terms of the quality of the manufacturing process that we could set in place in order to secure uh, approval to, to go into phase one and I have to say once again echoing some of the comments that Francesco made earlier that the, the regulators were absolutely fantastic in in the kind of level of advice that they gave us basically on an informal basis but nonetheless the steer that they gave us in enabling us to design, particularly our safety studies, was was absolutely um, fundamental.
0: So can I ask, can you put a time frame on that? How long was it from your first approach to Um, getting approval?
2: So it it did take a long time but I think a large part of the reason for the long time that it took was the fact that when we began CAR T-cell immunotherapy was viewed I think as the kind of activity that people who had watched too many episodes of Star Trek as a child would be engaged in and that this was a technology which would never make any kind of meaningful impact in the clinic. And we've gone from that situation, it's, it's typical of things in life really, where you go from uh, one extreme to the other, where now we have an absolute frenzy of activity surrounding CAR T-cell immunotherapy, based upon the, the efficacy data that have emerged from a number of U.S. centers in particular, surrounding B-cell, or CD19-targeted CAR T-cells, where in a first-in-man setting, we've got complete remission rates in patients with ALL of approaching 90% in more than one center absolutely amazing. Of course the real question for people like me is how do we translate all of this into the area of greatest unmet need which is solid tumours because of course solid tumours account for 90% of the cancer and probably account for 95% of the unmet uh, need.
0: So, so you're, you're, are you saying that if you were to approach the regulators now with a new indication for car therapies the process of approval would be quicker.
2: I would say that if you were to set out with a good idea now from scratch, uh, you could probably get into a clinical trial within three to four years with appropriate engagement with regulators, um, so that you design the efficacy and tox studies uh, with their advice in mind. I would say four years is probably a realistic time frame.
0: And can I just ask, Francesco and Graham, you've you both got clinical trials, are there? Ongoing or approved? Would you say three to four years in your different indications? So, Francesco first.
1: Yeah, uh, my, my my experience with uh, mesenchymal stem cell for the treatment of uh, immune-related disorders, and uh, it's probably a s- similar a similar uh, pathway. You still have to navigate where to get the money through, uh, but it is uh, it is certainly a. I mean, the time frame is a, is exactly that.
0: And
2: you...
3: I, mean, I think what you need to look at is whether you're going to take something sort of stock manufacturing process off the shelf where you know sort of two to three maybe four years. So I, I think we have compressed that timeline if it's relatively standard. I think what we're doing with our cell therapy programme is bringing about new technology so we're looking so at institutes. you
0: could explain what your uh, trial is going to be.
3: Yeah. So uh, our first trial off the block, which hopefully will be starting in the next 12 months, is um, adoptive therapy with regulatory T cells for inflammatory bowel disease, so sort of moving away from cancer, if you like, the other side of the same coin, so an overactive immune system and how it, can we take out syngenetic cells from a patient with Crohn's disease, for example, expand them in vitro and then reinfuse them in order to suppress uh, the aberrant immune activation in the gut and then help the epithelial cells of the gut to repair. So in order to do that, because we were concerned about plasticity in vivo in an inflammatory environment, we were worried that the regulatory T cells might turn into effector cells and cause more damage than they, than they sort of cured. We're, we've gone down the line of developing uh, GMP compliant flow sorting, so sort of fax fluorescent activated cell sorting, which is a, a new, if you like, process, manufacturing process that we've put upstream of the expansion of the expansion phase prior to adoptive cell therapy. And so that has expanded it a bit further in terms of the timelines. I think we've had some interesting early discussions whether, so who is it that regulates it? So we talked about MHRA, is it MHRA, is it the HTA? And sometimes when you have very innovative technologies like that you're bringing to the field for the first time, I think the regulators sometimes struggle to see who's going to regulate it. But actually, as you say, early discussions you know, can help with that. So I think the regulatory environment is also changing in an iterative fashion and with discussions with investigators as they see the unmet medical need and there's more investment in this field. So probably for the study that I'm running it will be, it's been a little bit longer than that. But again that's because there's been technological development. We also then have partnership with the manufacturer of the flow sorter, so we have to go back to the factory and re-engineer parts of the um, parts of the process, which again is very exciting and I think the, one of the key points here is that once we've developed this for this one indication, it will be a platform for every single other indication that requires very, very pure cell products. And just to echo one of John's points earlier on about the, if you like, the heterogeneity of regulation rule for the heterogeneity of cells the way that that was solved in manufacturing small molecules or antibodies was ensuring purity and consistency. So I think these sort of platforms and these technological developments of the process are going to be vital alongside the science and the discovery of new targets to moving the field forward as quickly as possible.
0: I think you make a a good point because when we think about commercial partners, we often think about a partner who is going to fund a clinical trial or co-fund one. But but in your case, the commercialization opportunities around equipment, um, devices uh, or reagents like antibodies um, are probably less of a risk for the company. And um, it's a a real partnership because success that you have in the clinic will lead to sale of more uh, of the the equipment or the reagents. And so you could see a a cycle of mutual benefit with with the commercial sector.
3: Absolutely. No, and it, this is a, as you say, it's, it's much less risky because if, it doesn't, if a platform doesn't work in one type of indication, there's lots of other indications that it can be used in because it's about developing a process. And as you say, when you match the development of, sort of hardware and then the software, as you might like to talk about, the reagents, if you match that together, you know, these things are always going to be very expensive. Um, they're not going to be the sort of thing that will fall massively at scale there's a huge commercial opportunity there. And as you say, if we're successful, they're successful and vice versa. So it's a proper partnership. It's been very exciting.
0: It's good. Now, um, the next topic that we're going to discuss is planning a clinical trial. You three are clinically qualified. I'm a PhD. um, And I know from reviewing many grant applications that there are many very successful basic scientists who will, in the final paragraph of their grant application, explain how they're going to cure heart disease or dementia or anything you would like. Um, And basic scientists often find that if they genuinely want to progress um, their work to the clinic, they've probably left it a bit late because they have tried in a very scientific fashion to really nail the basics and then they realized that if they had thought about the the reality of going into the clinic uh, that there are certain things they could have done earlier on. Is that, is that a fair assessment?
3: I think it, it probably was. I think it's becoming less so and I think one of the things that is Uh, a game changer is the investment by the National Institute of Health Research in sort of biomedical research centres. So I direct our biomedical research centre here, as you mentioned in the introduction. And what the BRC does is it brings together sort of basic scientists um, who are interested in translating, you know, clinical scientists who are doing some of that early phase translation. So actually, so these questions are starting to be addressed earlier. I think what it also does, so it's not just a question of, if you like, sort of conceptual pathways and at what time you jump into translation. I think it's having the, or realising that actually you, it's hard to do it within an individual lab, you know, even if you're very, very large and well-funded. And what you need is sort of critical platform infrastructure, which is here certainly what the BRC is invested in. So GMP uh, manufacturing, you know, immune monitoring, and all that clinical research infrastructure that you need that's cost tens of millions of pounds, that no matter how good a PR you are, it's always hard (laughs) to raise that sort of money. I mean, we all write lots of grants, but to to get that infrastructure with support from both a hospital and a university, I think is one of the things that makes this place unique. So then, you know, basic scientists can see this is how I can translate. They see it happening. So they start to have those thoughts and discussions earlier on. And the other wraparound you have that is, you know, the regulatory understanding is we've discussed the ability to design a clinical trial. So what sort of clinical trial you want to do, first of all, and I think there's a lot of innovation going on right now around the world. that's both commercial and academic about sort of early phase adaptive trial design. So we've been stuck with the sort of the three plus three safety, it's safe, and that takes five years. And then it would take another five years to do a bit of efficacy. So actually, we're going in earlier to patients and looking for efficacy. So I think the whole model of, you know, phase 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, phase 3 that's based around small molecule development and biologic development is not really fit for purpose. So I think there's innovation in all of this space, which is A, what makes it challenging, B, what makes it expensive, but C, what makes it very exciting to be involved in
0: and uh, Francesco, thinking about collaboration, I was wondering if you could comment on your experience of being a partner in uh, one of the uh, in, in the u k regenerative medicine platform, which uh, as as we know is an investment by the research councils of uh, twenty five million pounds really to build on existing funding to facilitate collaborations and um, Identify and and try to um, backfill areas of weakness. So so, what's your impression of
1: UK R think the LCL has been uh, a uh, really a, a, an amazing, innovative, uh, inno- in producing innovative uh, uh, enterprise by building platforms across different disciplines. We know, you know our own experience, how we put together stem cell biologists and immunologists that probably a few years ago were almost impossible or <laughs> didn't make any sense. Uh, and this has produced a fantastic uh, network uh, in which uh, there are you know, scientists involved in, uh, in cell imaging, uh, the, the cell invo- uh, scientists involved in the, the behavior and the uh, differentiation of stem cells, but at the same time, how can we uh, modulate the uh, patients, immunomodulate the patients, to uh, uh, accept the, the the different stem cells. So, I think it has produced a fantastic uh, opportunity, which probably even comes before the Phase one clinical trials because we have this possibility, with, ne- with this necessity, to get together, to have a really very good uh, uh, enterprise. To somehow eco and look in the perspective that, uh, uh, um, a different perspective that uh, Graham was mentioning, commercials and companies have uh, uh, sometimes pressed, of course, uh, to test new therapies. And uh, I can talk about my own experience with music stem cells. There have been, and also other stem cells, in know, there have been some failures due to the fact that there was a rush into the clinical trial without probably knowing better about uh, science behind it. Uh, And this is at high risk of some some time uh, aborting a a pathway that could be otherwise extremely promising. So I think the KRMP is a fantastic initiative uh, to put together this underlying framework that can help us uh, to go back and forth uh, for whatever question we, we want to address in a clinical trial.
0: And um, looking beyond the UK to Europe, the Horizon 2020 funds uh, quite a lot of activity in regenerative medicine. Um, what are your experiences of, th- of those kind of networks? I think you're in the I got, Yeah, I've got a
1: two trials. No, actually, one trial and one of the uh, funding in that. Um, I have to admit, our own uh, um, UK um, Evaluation of grants is much more rigorous, much more scientific, uh, science-oriented, but if you like, a bit more conservative. I think that the EU, if you like, has this advantage of being a bit brave, and uh, they have spent a large amount of money on two calls exclusive clinical trial last year. So we'll see where this leads. Um, Certainly, they got quite a lot of resources, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs)
3: I mean, I think the, the EU yes. networks are valuable on a number of levels. I think, as you say, they can be a bit more risky, whether that's because there's, there's slightly less accountability for them. I'm sure that's not <laughs> the case. But, um, but I think what it does is it, it builds networks across Europe and understanding of the differences in the regulatory process, the difference in the manufacturing process. So my hope is that actually it can share best practice and raise the bar across Europe. Because actually, in terms of commercial investment, you know, whilst we're hopefully in part making the UK the best place to come and do regenerative medicine, which I, I genuinely think we are, if you're looking, if you're a global pharma company, you'll be looking at major areas and it's actually the whole of Europe. We're actually too small a market if we've said we've only fixed mm-hmm. it for the UK, but actually if we've fixed it for the whole of Europe and then that's readily transparent to the US, then all of a sudden you've got a very um, attractive commercial proposition. Obviously, if you can show efficacy and cost of goods.
0: So, Jenna, I was going to say, I know for you it's been a long, long haul to get to um, your, your first uh, clinical trial. Could you say something about um, the, the main routes for funding for phase one trials and beyond?
2: Okay, so I guess based upon my own experience, uh, initially the the funding situation was quite challenging actually, particularly before CAR T cells uh, achieved uh, any kind of clinical efficacy as I have referred to earlier. So uh, often it came down actually to securing money from philanthropists because it was very difficult to to obtain funding from any other sources. The traditional um, bodies to whom one applies for funding for these kinds of studies certainly pays uh, a lot of interest to the commercial angle of the therapy that you're trying to develop. And when it comes to cell therapies, that can be quite challenging really in terms of how does one envision to commercialize a therapy that is pre-Phase 1 testing. What's the intellectual property situation like? That can be very, very difficult, etc. So I found it quite challenging to obtain funding from the traditional sources starting out. With the emergence of CAR T-cell immunotherapy and the uh, increasing interest in the pharmaceutical sector uh, in this kind of approach, um, allowing for the complexities of the IP landscape, I I found that the funding environment changed dramatically. So for for phase one in the UK, um, uh, Wellcome Trust, MRC and Cancer Research UK are all now very interested in this kind of um, activity.
0: And Francesco, what about beyond phase one proof of uh, well safety? Wh- what happens after that?
1: I think that is a big challenge in which, as uh, Graham was mentioned before, uh, we do need uh, large, large investment. And this cannot be, uh, of course, taken by the you know, governmental agency and uh, the, the funding which is currently available. Um, so the, the largest phase three, which would probably require hundreds of patients, uh, uh, do require big investment for the big companies, not even sure you know, whether a small medium enterprise or you know, small biotech will be sufficiently able to, to, to afford that so that is a, probably the biggest challenge, but uh, um, you know, for example, Europe is helping to some extent in this. All consortia have uh, uh, small and medium enterprises together, and this is an important aspect that can uh, that can uh, uh, ignite this. I also think I want to make a point about uh, the need within the cellular therapy uh, of uh, identifying probably a more restricted number of patients because uh, it is much more complex, not only regulatory but also scientific. Um, it's not a drug so we don't even know what happens after. Uh, biomarkers are almost entirely unknown and we do need that, that sort of support. So. If we could also invest, as the UK is doing, in identifying some of the biomarkers which predict response to a particular cell, we could make our trials, even phase three, much more effective without any of thousands of patients.
0: So that that brings me on to a question for Graham about patient recruitment. In Francesco's case, he is treating uh, patients with graft-versus-host disease, which is life-threatening and acute. John is, is dealing with patient cancer patients who have exhausted all other avenues of therapy, but if you're um, approaching a young man who's got Crohn's disease, which can be managed, do you think it's going to be difficult to encourage someone like that to uh, participate in a, a, a cell based therapy trial
3: I think it's i mean it's a very good question, and I think if you like the the bar to entry into a market it's lower in cancer um, for as you say for the obvious reasons I think and there's always this debate about you know whether it's sort of pricing and market entry with autoimmunity versus cancer which is that there's and I think what people don't really realize um, unless they're seeing people in clinic the whole time is that there's a huge unmet need in autoimmunity so um, our trial in Crohn's disease will be for um, patients with sort of moderate to severe disease who have failed standard Um, therapies and we have discussed this with our patient group prior to setting up the trial to do if you like a sort of a a feasibility study and patients are very very keen to try uh, a novel therapy for something that is a sort of chronic disease that affects their ability to hold down a job. Uh, these patients are often sort of quite young, you know, in the sort of prime of their sort of mm-hmm. economic and, uh, lives, you know, in their sort of their career and wanting a family. So there's a huge need there. Um, and, a, you know, a sort of huge market size as well if you look at, you know, sort of TNF-alpha blockade, which is the standard treatment at the moment for someone with, with Crohn's disease. So there's a significant number of patients, about 70% of patients don't um, either respond to TNF-alpha blockade or they don't have a maintenance of remission. So a very large patient group there. And actually when you tell them that the you know, what we're going to do is take some blood, expand their own regulatory T-cells and make them work and put them back in, it actually is, people say, well, that makes sense because surely you've been doing much more ambitious things than that with kidney transplants or bone marrow transplants or islet transplants, which are now routine clinical care. So I think when it's explained in those terms, Patients seem very enthusiastic to participate. And also, you know, if you have a a chronic long-term disease that, you know, where you accrue disability and you need lots of surgery and lots of potentially toxic drugs, I think patients are only too keen to get involved.
0: So that brings me on to um, a question about infrastructure. And I'm thinking particularly about GMP laboratories for expanding cells. So the uh, cell therapy catapult is investing a lot of money in a large facility which will offer opportunities for, for people to expand their cells. Um, and I could imagine that for some treatments the ideal would be that you have a freezer or a liquid nitrogen tank and instead of prescribing aspirin you prescribe a vial of cells. But for other treatments you're, as you've said, treating somebody with their own cells. So. Where do you think um, universities and medical schools should be um, positioning themselves when it comes to
3: infrastructure? So I guess speaking from, from what our experience here, sort of seven, seven or eight years ago, we made the decision to invest in um, GMP manufacturing infrastructure as part of the, the biomedical research centre, which again shows you how long it takes. So we're just starting to use it now to deliver our first demand trials. I think university medical schools absolutely need to be in that first-in-man space, and have the ability to manufacture their cells. And critically, as Francesca was saying with the, the UK RMP, be informed by the basic science to say actually, okay, this is our first one off the block, but actually this is our second phase, this is our third phase of regulatory T-cells or CAR T-cells. So there's continual process improvement that's informed by the science, the discovery of new targets, the discovery of new biology. I think that's, that's absolutely core business. Where we're moving it to here, Um, is the ability to manufacture to intermediate scale so we can manufacture for 20 to 30 patients now we're very good at that we've just done you know three first in the world trials over the last four months john's is one of those where we've manufactured the cells here stevenage will be for phase three when you need 300 400 actually there's a real need now both for gene therapy and cellular therapy for that intermediate scale manufacturing and i think that's an perfect opportunity, as we're doing here, for public-private partnership between university, hospital, medical schools and SMEs, the charitable sector wanting to make investments for that intermediate-scale manufacture, which is exactly what we're doing here to, if you like, move towards that large-scale manufacture. So actually we can do the definitive, we can manufacture and perform, if you like, the definitive intermediate phase. And I think, as Francesca was alluding to, understanding where we can use adaptive trial methodology I hope, means um, that we can show efficacy that the regulators and, critically, the purgators may start, to, att- particularly with adaptive licensing, from smaller number of patients. If we're clever, rather than the standard, we would need 5,000 placebo-controlled, you know, the standard sort of um, placebo-controlled clinical trial that's been standard, which is more suitable for small molecules.
0: So, Francesco, I know that at um, King's College Hospital, you've been very heavily involved in... Setting up a GMP facility, and it's a, it's m- multiple um, facilities within the same core for gene therapy and cell therapy. So I know the experience has been painful in some ways, but could you um, could you give us some perspective on, on, on infrastructure?
1: As we all know, it's very painful, <laughs> uh, and I can it's tell you very because it. Because well, exactly. I mean, just <laughs> to give an idea, we—I mean, I started uh, at Imperial this uh, when I was at Imperial the mesenchymal stem cells, and that was about uh, probably eight nine years ago. I can't say it was easy, but it was easy. Uh redoing more or less the same thing, just by moving to another facility. is uh, is taking at least another year, we're not yet ready yet, to to reproduce the thing. But is
0: that because you have to start from scratch in terms of the regulators?
1: It probably is correct, because uh, the standard procedure is not very different. Uh, Yeah, you adapt whether there is a corridor or a wardrobe or something like that, but it's not that difficult. What is required, more quality control, and how we start in the beginning was probably relatively relaxed, Um, When uh, the new regulations have been taking place, uh, this has, of course, made things much more complex. And the steps in quality control, as Graham and and John know, are are, are unfortunately endless. Uh, With what I'm not saying and not criticizing the MHRA because they are fantastic in helping with this. But, of course, regulations have been adopted by the farmer with molecules, uh, and in cellular therapies, is much more complex compared to molecules. And that is of course, is a, another layer of complexity that is uh, f- yeah, very difficult.
3: But I, I, mean, I think if I can come in, I think the, and I think this is slightly different between the, sort of the US and the UK, perhaps, is that I think what we're doing, and again, this is why I think the UK will be the best place for you know, regenerative medicine and cell therapy, is we sort of front load our QC and our processes. So actually once you have something that works, it's a lot quicker to scale up. And I think that's part of the concept that the Catapult's helping with, that the MRC's invested in. And I think the, rather rapidly, we've developed quite an impressive community of basic scientists, clinicians, hospitals and universities that want to invest in this and funding agencies and, and commercial bodies that are interested in investing in it. So I think we've really got a critical mass now. And I think it is painful and it does take time and it's very expensive. But I think those are the sort of things that, again, if we can show efficacy, will pay off down the line because, if you like, we sort of front-loaded that investment.
0: I must say I like your point about um, the partnership between basic scientists and clinicians because I was very inspired by the BRC here to take some steps towards a cell therapy trial. Uh, And and when we were funded uh, to hire somebody to work on that, I thought, nobody, no postdoc is going to apply to my lab for something which is so practical. Um, and I was absolutely delighted that the quality uh, and the caliber of the applicants was fantastic. So I do think in terms of basic scientists, we're preaching to the converted. I think people want to do something useful and they, can, they, they, they understand what, what we're trying to achieve. So that is, is um, I would say is a major change in, in thinking about um, the, the potential of cell therapies.
1: If I may, been a, actually it is a new avenue, and uh, as you know, uh, we have uh, developed a new master in cellular therapies with uh, a particular and fairly large module on the uh, uh, market initiative, so how to translate an idea from the ban- bench directly into a viable business model. You know, also the the, the PhD uh, uh, course that you have, uh, you know, developed, uh, it will fit very well with this uh, with this notion, and to finally see what e- what we do, how can it be, you know, make a, a, a beneficial to the UK um, PLC.
3: Well, I, th- I think if I do also sorry jump, jump in here, I think it's also we're talking about translation in one direction, which is great if you like for clinical impact, but actually I think. What we're also capturing here and we need to do more of is, is, is capture the reverse translation. So how do cells behave? Well if you put them into a patient and you have the, the, the conceptual flexibility and the anal- analytical infrastructure to look where they go, what they do, how they behave in the niche that they find in a patient, mm. well then there's a huge opportunity to, if you like, validate targets that we've discovered in vitro or in preclinical models, and also to discover new models that are specific to human disease. And I think understanding that, if you like, that reverse translation to do really, really good Mm. basic science and reductionist science in patients with disease, I think is a a relatively unexplored offshoot of this, but obviously we're well positioned to look at here. I think we
0: are. So we're going to um, wrap up in a few minutes, but um, uh, we can't stop without asking each of you Uh, what you see as the future of cell-based therapies. So, John, from your perspective, um, where are we going here? If you could think beyond the cancer sphere into uh, regenerative medicine, are you optimistic or do you think it's uh, a flash in the pan? Uh,
2: I'm extremely optimistic. I mean, I guess I've based my whole career on the development of cell therapies, so it would be strange if I was to say anything other than that, really. Um, But you want to
0: kill cells, and that's a bit different from... uh, Treating diabetes with uh, implanted beta
2: cells? Yes, I mean, I suppose I view cell therapies in general as living drugs, really. I think it is uh, a new modality of treatment that is just about to enter the clinic on multiple fronts. Uh, and that is part of where the challenge lies because there is a lack of familiarity at the kind of drug development, um, throughout the drug development process with this new therapy. But we have seen very, very compelling proof of concept of how cell therapies can achieve things that no other therapeutic modality can. So I'm extremely optimistic about the future. I think there will be challenges, particularly about cost of manufacturing cell products and about reimbursement. But the reason that I remain optimistic nonetheless is because I think technological advances in this field are happening so quickly that they will circumvent many of the obstacles that uh, we see uh, at the moment um, uh, across the board.
0: And Francesca, I know you're a card-carrying haematologist. Are you ever going to be treating your patients with pluripotent stem cells? Or they probably <laughs> their derivatives?
1: <laughs> That's, yeah, probably. Uh, well that is a very interesting uh, uh, concept. Uh, um, because at the moment, for example, we could, uh, you know, consider ourselves happy with uh, the poivitis themselves. cells. Uh, but there are, of course, uh, a number of challenges. And I would say in particular the cell dose, we, uh, from our experience, we know that it would be better to have as many cells as we can. And this as you know, this has been uh, you know, uh, also experienced in other even failed clinical trials. So. The somatic stem cells are not probably that good at being expanded. There is no good uh, talking about stem cells, not cells. Uh, so um, certainly the opportunity, IPS uh, or something similar, is uh, is a great opportunity. Possibly more controllable. We don't know to what extent we can refine it, but it still is a, a great opportunity. Um, the other aspect, whether this could be autologous or allogeneic which is another big challenge as you know as a UK RMP and uh, our hub is specifically addressing these questions. Um, but, you know, just to give an idea, when, uh, you know, Graham would never transplant a, uh, would never think that uh, a allogenic kidney would not <coughs> be rejected. Now we start thinking that there are some cellular therapies that can still produce an effect without necessarily being identical between the donor and You know. Even CAR-T cells, we just injected the first patient in hematology uh, today, actually. Uh, so it is uh, a, a, a big challenge that uh, could uh, even challenge some of the big uh, dogmas uh, of immunologists.
0: So, so finally, to put Graham on the spot, because I know that you've transplanted the, the odd kidney, um, are you ever going to say you don't, need a, you don't need a donor kidney because, you know what, we've got, we've got some... Uh, any organoids that you can have instead?
3: I think so. <laughs> I think so. And I hope it will be within my, well, first of all, my working lifetime, because that would be very <laughs> exciting, but hopefully within my physical lifetime. I think I'd probably say three things. One, um, is a sort of a bit of a medical analogy, but people always talk about the ECG of development of new fields. So you get a bit of excitement to start off with. So that's your little P wave. So I apologise for the non-clinical <laughs> train. That's a little blip at the start of your ECG. Then you get this enormous you know, our wave of excitement where everyone's piling in to invest and, you know, you see the car T-cells and 90% cure and, you know, people are doing deals all over the place. And and that's where we are right now. There'll be a massive plunge in the next three or four years. I suspect the the bubble of optimism will burst and that's your big Q-wave that comes right down. And then actually what it'll do, it'll settle back to baseline. There'll be what we call a T-wave, which is actually the unmet need where, these products will fit into. So I think we have to manage expectations of politicians who want short term turnarounds and good news stories and it all needs to be on the upward trajectory so that's very important. I think the other concept we need to consider is combinatorial therapy so by which I mean we may need to transplant cells in combination with administration of endogenous regulators of those cells. Possibly in combination with checkpoint regulators in cancer, so with monoclonal antibodies, so I think that combination is going to be very interesting to explore will be driven by the basic science, but actually critically from the verse, reverse translation about what we learn about the PK and the PD of the cells that we do transplant, so the ability to track these cells is critical, and also the links with bioengineering so what mm. what what do you put these cells in? Is it do you put them in a box? What membranes do you need? You know, and, and the, how it f- fits into sort of nanotechnological targeting. And I guess the final thing is, I think we're at the start of a really exciting wave of new science and medicine. Very similar, I think, to when you know, the first drugs were made, when the first monoclonal antibodies were discovered. And, you know, and they all went through, particularly monoclonal antibodies, went through a massive dip, and everyone said they're never going to be used for treatment. And now they're the biggest blockbusters on the planet treating huge medical needs. So it's very exciting to be involved in just a very small part of that.
0: Well, thank you. That's all we've got uh, time for today. But I'd like to thank all of you for a fantastic uh, discussion. Um, and I hope that our, our viewers have enjoyed it too. Thank you